Hey there, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. Here's the truth about our current time, or any time since our species has become sapiens. How we interact with reality around us is an emergent effect from the philosophy we choose to subscribe to. Life forms tend to be set onto a path. A fern is to photosynthesize, a frog is to leap, and sapiens, perhaps the only part of our wise moniker, befitting the label it bestows, are set onto a path of philosophy. Yes, 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 we have the ability to kill at a distance. Our arms have been engineered over evolutionary cycles to be perfectly adjusted to generate thrust for a throw, which might have set us down a path of making more and more advanced projectiles. We have novel social groups, and unlike nearly any other species on the planet, we can live in solitude or small pairs, as well as large groups and cosmopolitan societies, which makes for the ability to survive the most chaotic of challenges and work together to make the pyramids. Insofar as I've really sat and pondered this, the biggest unique quality that makes us what we are is our ability to have an idea or set of ideas that shape the very way we view and interact with reality around us. Cannibalism is repugnant, but not to some species, and neither is it to some cultural groups of sapiens. Look left and right at the world around us, all the endless news cycles, equally as endless discord about the next thing that comes up. It's all a product of the philosophy of the individual or individuals who are producing it. So very much of the complicated present moment we live in is an emergent quality of the philosophy that many of us unknowingly entrench ourselves in. Putting it rather plainly, philosophy is what we make of thinking, and in turn, what we encourage from that thinking is inevitably how we end up viewing reality. We can see the world in one way or another, but what's most important along the way is to not forget that it is our choice in how we see the world. For if we only continue on with comfort, what we're taught or what we've always thought, we're going to lose out on a lot of moments worth noticing and a lot of opportunities to better our reality in the individual and community. This episode ignited all types of thought within me, from how we can better come together as a collective species to resolve our relationship with the earth, and also why it is so hard for most of us to see that lost connection, let alone mend it. Each time I've talked with Ron Good, the tribal chair of the North Fork Mono Tribe, he deposits wide chunks of previously unknown history and wisdom. In this exchange, little has changed. With the exception of us for a bit driving out of the known and into the mystic, unexplainable, yet real. In this episode, Ron riffs with me on the type of philosophy abundant in America today. What better ways there are for us to think about tending a forest, issuing better hunting tags, stories from his childhood, before ending on a truth about our time. If you ever have a moment, I encourage you to join or donate to one of the cultural burns that Ron puts on. He's a wellspring of knowledge and I truly hope those who are in charge of managing our lands will start to listen to his words instead of merely hearing them. Well, without further musing by me, you got a call to action, a bit of rhythm, then my conversation with Ron Good, tribal chair of the North Fork Mono Tribe. Real quick before the episode starts. If you'd like to listen to us on your streaming platform of choice, sign up for a mailing list to be the first to know about episode drops or ask questions to upcoming guests, please follow us at bandwithpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, 
follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod, however it is that this is getting to your ears. All right. Ron, thank you again for taking the time. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, it's been a couple months and uh, some time has passed and uh, all of that. So um, actually, right after I, re- so I recorded yours like be- well before I launched the podcast um, and I started doing it after I started recording a couple episodes is asking uh, guests a-, a question to start the interview. So uh, I'm gonna ask it to you and it's, uh, what do you like to do that makes you happy? Uh, talk to people yeah i uh well then i'm happy that i'm able to talk to you because it makes me quite happy <laughs> that's great have you talked to anybody that uh, you've particularly enjoyed recently pretty much everybody every day i mean i've got two or three interviews or presentations uh I'm doing a lot of work right now, planning for our upcoming burn. And so I'm on online or on telephone or, you know, talking to people all over the state and some of them out of state. (laughs) So we have uh, three colleges that are four four colleges that might come with three UC Davis, UC Berkeley and Montana State University and Arizona State and maybe Monterey um, Institute. But those would be the four or five that are being represented. That's great. Is it students or volunteers? They're all volunteers. They're students and professors. And uh, so we have a whole four-day weekend set up. Montana's coming for all four. Uh, Davis will be there for three. And then the others will be there for one or two days. But hey, yeah, that's fine. And then um, and then I have a number of tribes. Uh, I'm keeping my numbers down to around 50 this year, 60 at the most and whereas last year I had over a hundred so just even 60s too much but it's hard to hard to keep you know some people who really want to come yeah you know but uh, we are experiencing great um, great weather meaning that we're it's raining and snowing every day so that's what we've been looking for and so, you know, we have to welcome it. Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, it, I could have to cancel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's great. So you that's get all right. what you wish for. Yeah, that's all right. Okay. You know, that's the whole idea is when you're burning, you're burning to, to bring the water back. So if you get in the water, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Well, how uh, how big is the burn? Like how many acres? Uh, we're cultural burning, so it can be anywhere from three to ten acres each mm. time we burn. Never more than that. 
Um, sometimes we do a small broadcast burn and most of the time it's um, clearing and brushing and taking care of cultural resources. So sourberries, redbud, elderberries, gooseberry, no, uh, coffeeberry, what else is there, manzanita, just whatever different resources that are out there that need to be cleaned up and manicured and burned so that they can come back. And the oaks, all the oaks and the trees, the pines. So it's not just the, not just the shrubbery, but a little bit of everything. That's great. And, uh, you know, over the years you get a lot of then, you know, even technically we've been in drought out here for two or three years now. They won't claim it that way because it's all politics. Of course. But, uh, but we haven't had the water supply that we need. And so we're still, we still have a number of oaks and pines dying on us. And so you got to take them down and you got to clean them up. You can't leave them. You know, that's what they do out in the forest. <laughs> you just leave it, you know. Uh, used to be, even in the forest, they offered people to go out and get wood and you could Lots of people would have their, their side businesses as wood, you know, sell 10, 15, 20 cords. And you get 50 people doing that, you know, all over three or four counties. And you're doing a lot of cleanup. Right. But, you know, they close a lot of roads down and then they don't really offer any of that up. And, you know, you can go out and get a couple of cords here and there and, you know, they don't, they don't make it easy and accessible. So, of course, then when a wildfire comes, then look out because, yeah. you know. You have a lot of dry timber just waiting for it. There's your mess that you haven't touched. Right. And yet it's supposed to be public land, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. Yeah. Public not welcome, but oh, yeah, it's public <laughs> land. <laughs> yeah public just uh just the name uh they so they changed is it just by closing the roads is that what, mostly what they did or they also changed oh, yeah. like, the inc you know, incentives to take it out yeah because you need to get access to into areas that you know haven't been touched but that's of course they're part of their whole deal they don't have to take care of anything and put any money into taking care of roads the only time they take care of roads is when there's a wildfire because then they get paid for it. <clears throat> so they'll go in and grade them and gravel them. You know, so after after there's been a major fire, then, hey, man, all right, got a good road now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, you know, thank you, fire, you know. Yeah. yeah. Now we got a good road. Uh, that's, you know, always looking at what the good is that came out of something. Oh yeah, you got to, right? But mm -hmm. it it's an unfortunate um emerging trend in uh our government and I, I you know, I, I no longer live in California, but I definitely saw it when I was out there, which is uh not fixing something until it's already blown up and staring you in the face and you have no other choice. Well, you know, this creek fire that we had out here, the biggest single fire in California history. <clears throat> Uh, minimally 500 million right right half a billion and yet you could have taken five million 
in taking care of the land. You know, maybe 50 million, all right? Maybe we'll go, we'll stretch it. 50 million, but 500 million? That's what it cost us. And how many fires did we have? Thousands of them. Right. <laughs> you know, hundreds, hundreds of great big ones. So I don't know, you know, we, we just don't seem to get our priorities right. Too much noise, too much noise. And, and I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, not enough of a tie to, to anything anymore, really, other than, I mean, it, it feels like our culture doesn't have a tie to the land, but it, it, I mean, that's like such a very easy thing to say. I feel like we're, we're losing a tie to each yeah. other and we're losing a tie to, you know, everything, you know? There's no connectedness. Yes. You know, and, and which then means the responsibility. And if you don't have a connectedness to something, you don't feel responsible for it, mm -hmm. you know? And it's just too many people I talk to all the time. They go, oh, we went out and we were driving by these meadows and oh my God, it's so beautiful to see them. And it's like, what meadow did you see that was beautiful? Mm -hmm. <laughs> every meadow that i've seen they're all dying and not being cared for you know they're they're less than 10 percent of what they used to look like you know a 300 acre meadow is now 30 acres a 300 be 3,000 acres <laughs> right you used to be able to drive 20 miles and be connected with meadows now you got to go 20 miles to see the next meadow <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't know, you know, but it's just like, even those who work out there, they just go to work. They don't see nothing. You know, you can ask them questions about how, what you see and what you observe. And it's, well, I don't know, I just work, come back, <laughs> I do my thing and come back. You know, it's like, how sad, but that's the connectedness that we're all lost. Rather you work out there, or rather you visit out there, or you play out there, you know? Yeah, tunnel. It's like tunnels, tunnel visioned, but it's almost as if we've traded connectedness to present moments, to just always being connected to the moment that's encroaching or coming next, mm -hmm. you know? Well, it's kind of like our playgrounds, though, you know? All our playgrounds, whether it's for the kindergartners or whether it's uh, high schoolers or whether it's community, who fixes the playgrounds? Mm -hmm. Somebody does, but not the people that go to play there, right? <laughs> and so, you know, as long as the thing will work, fine. If it don't work, well, then don't play on it. it we are. And then whose responsibility is it to fix where you want to play? But it's the same thing when we talked, we talked earlier and you're talking about the water and you talk about, you know, the habitat and you talk about taking care of things out there. Um, you know, you talk to the irrigation districts and, oh, you know, we're not concerned about the upper watershed because it's too unstable. And the, and the people that manage the upper watersheds, you know, they don't know what they're doing. So why should we put any money back into it? Why? Where do you think your water comes from? Yeah. <laughs> All that money that you're making, 
you know, downstream and down in the valley, but you don't want to fix the upper watershed. So there's no money goes into it. Um, Fish and Wildlife put out $61 million and they got two meadows that they worked on. Two, you know, they aren't even done yet. $61 million and you got no accounting of where your money went. And that was one agency. There's eight others supplying money. What? For what? It's, you know. It's a blind leading the blind. Yeah, they don't they don't even yeah. know. They'll be able to give you a lot of reasons as to what they're doing, but not a lot of, uh, I don't know, proof in the pudding, I suppose. I think it goes back, though, to what Pretty you much. said. It goes, I feel like it goes back to what you said, though, because I think a lot of those people that are populating those agencies and, and those offices of government are people that are tunnel visions, like you said. Like Even if they work out there, they don't really understand or have a connection or sense of history to know that you know this meadow, these two meadows that we're uh, restoring actually should be much <clears throat> larger and a part of a much larger network of them. And this beauty we're restoring is uh, is a lot more vibrant than what we're allowing us, us to think is the status quo that we're trying to bring back. Yeah, I work on, I try to work on grants. When you start reading a grant and you know, as soon as you start reading it, the people who wrote this had never been out there. You know, they don't know what's out there. They don't know why they got in their mind what they want your your money you know to do for them not what you're supposed to be doing out there what you want to do out there to take care of the land is what what when your project you have if you're going to restore meadows you know how is that going to affect the downstream water users if if you're restoring a meadow how's that going to affect the salmon you know Oh, if you're doing a burn, you know, as an indigenous tribal member, how is that going to affect Western science? How is that going to be compatible with Western scientists? I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What the heck? You know, I don't see them out here doing anything. They're not burning. They're not fixing meadows. You know? But no, that's what you, that's what you got to, that's what you got to comply with if you're going to write a grant. You know? Yeah, bunch of rulers. They, they don't know what we're doing. They don't understand what we're doing out there. You know, so where's the connectedness? Comes yeah. back to that. Yeah. It's, um, we're, we've become a society that's obsessed with what's quantifiable. And what you work in is the unquantifiable, right? <laughs> that's good words there you go that's good words right there yeah that's quite true just working with what you gave me but, well it, it goes back to you know as i've said before what's the philosophy we're still living on you know what what's the philosophical content you know that that we're still uh, abiding by Mm -hmm. Right, and it's the European concept of what we want, and everything's about economic development. 
everything's a commodity. Doesn't matter if it's water, trees, the land, minerals, everything out there is a commodity, you know, and that's how it gets treated. And so if it can't make you money, what are we doing with it? I, I've worked on the forest revision plan. Now, when it comes to wilderness, they stated it plainly, written, wrote it. Wilderness. If you don't touch it, you don't mess with it, it won't cost you anything. <laughs> so let's have some more wilderness because that's less land that we got to deal with. And we're not getting enough money, so let's just put it all in the wilderness. Ignorant. What do you think? What do you think wilderness was, <laughs> or is? And you know how many, how many archaeological sites are out there on these wilderness grounds? I mean, do you don't think that indigenous people they didn't take care of it? You couldn't pass through the wilderness when you came from Europe or came across to America? Yes, they did. The trails were wide open. All you gotta do is read Mir, read Fremont, you know? Read the people, Walker. Read these people that came through in the 1800s. And they tell you, wherever they went, the trails were wide open. The forest was wide open. You could see. That's because the forest was kept at 40% canopy or less. You know, not 80, 90% the way we got it now. So, you know, it's just, uh, that's the thinking that was put in place when they wanted more trees. They were kicking the Indians off. You can't be burning. We don't want you burning. We want more trees. So they planted more trees. You know, oh, we can't have burning. So let's, let's suppress burning, you know. Get them Indians out of here. You know, this, you know, the pretty soon as get them sheep out of here, get them goats out of here. You know? Wow, already got rid of the grizzlies, already got rid of the elk, already got rid of the wolf, <laughs> getting rid of the Indian. That's how we think. That's the philosophy we're on. And then we want more, what another dam, we want tunnels. Oh, we gotta get rid of them little fishies. You know, we don't need those little fish. <laughs> They're just in the way, right? You want solar energy? Oh yeah, man, we need solar energy. Uh, well, what do we need those rare plants for? What do we need to worry about Indian sites? What do we need to worry about, you know, habitat? So, so it's a rare fox, so it's a rare what? We don't care, put solar in, you know? That's the way we go, we just, go down that same old road, you know? And then if you or me or whomever starts yelling environment, oh, they're environmentalists, oh, they're conservationists, oh, they're, you know, they don't know what's good for the country. <laughs> Again, what philosophy are we living by? We're not living by a sustainable world. We're not, we're not living you know, to make sure and ensure that this is a better place for our grandchildren's grandchildren. We're living for the now. 
I want my wallet fat. You know, my wallet needs to be fat like everybody else's. That I can, I can give a rip about my grandchildren's grandchildren. So there's no world here. Too bad they can go find another, go live on Venus or Mars. You know, that's the philosophy we live by. So, yeah, it's, I don't. it's rather unfortunate. I, uh, I obsess about philosophy, so I, I appreciate any philosophical riff you want to go down. But no, I mean, it's unfortunate, but I think that we're, the, the age that I always think of is um, decadence. You know, like uh, everything is just overwhelming. Like the, we always just want more and it has to be quantifiable and sellable and product, packaged in a product. And I just want to press a button or rip a package and have it to me. And it's unfortunate because I don't think it makes us any happier. In fact, I think it makes us more anxious and less fulfilled. And and the, the unfortunate thing of it is that the solution that we're sold for it is more of what we already have that's only making us less uh, happy. Um, you know, Yuval Noah Harari is a historian and philosopher, and he wrote this book, Sapiens. And one of the, the points he makes in it early in it is essentially how, you know, prehistory homo sapiens prehistory humans prehistory us were much happier and less anxious and spent most of their time in leisure and actually the amount of time we work now is more than any time and you know we're, we're less healthy because of it both mentally and physically um and it's it's unfortunate and, and i i hope that i i think you're right on the button i couldn't i couldn't tell you that i agree with you any more than i could because it is our philosophy where we're enslaved by an idea and the idea is that everything should be packaged and sold and it only perpetuates itself because the solution to it is the problem already that it's causing, right? Well, you can't say that any better, but again, it comes back to the 1% that runs our country. Mm -hmm. Our world. 1%, 1% you know? They have all the voice. They have all the say. You know, they have control of the rope, the strings. The rest of us don't. So. Yeah, I think that I agree with you. I do. I think the biggest. Um, I, I, I maybe I don't think I'm an optimist, actually. I really don't. I tend to think about too many dark things to, to be all that hopeful, to be truly honest. But I do have a lot of faith in this, uh, and that's um, the world is incredibly fragile. The system in which that we are built upon of this decadence or everything now is incredibly unstable. Um, the bill is coming incredibly due, incredibly quick, um, and it's going to have to get changed. Um, I worry about it, it being changed rather violently if it were, were all things being equal and true. Um, but I think in the faith that I have in it is that it is a tiny amount of people that are um, controlling everything and it can get changed because the majority of people can't change it. The fear that I have uh, is the fact that it's so complicated, the system that's built and what needs to change is so much that it's an overwhelming amount for anybody to really take in and understand and then figure out a new solution to change it. Because, you know, the way you described an individual who's detached enough and, and disconnected to maybe go into these, you know, large landscapes that are, you know, very awe-inspiring and, and, and in that sense are truly beautiful. 
but be blind to the history of you know mule deer and antelope and these giant grizzlies that used to live there in inheritance and 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 what that would mean for what the ecosystem would look like and instead are just you know punching in and punching out and going home and kind of living almost in a different reality because of what social media brings us um so the amount of information and things that need to change concerns me but it is one percent and i think it's possible to get overhauled in a way but i think it has to start with a philosophy and i think that's where it actually has to change I think there's a lot of people in America recognizing that. Um, maybe they don't know how to make the change or, or maybe they don't know, you know, what it's supposed to be like as far as environment, you know, yes. there, there is a reality that says that we really can't go back. 150 years ago, in part because we've allowed people to build and live anywhere. But, you know, on the other hand, these major fires and wildfires that have come through, they take out home after home. When you go up there in the mountains and, and, and you know, people that have moved up there have no sense of protection. Yes. You know, because they moved up there for the ambiance. They moved up there to have, you know, be able to have their friends come in and they can say, look at my beautiful big, you know, sugar pine growing in my by my kitchen window. And look at the beautiful cedar growing out of my deck. And you know I doubt oh, they even know the tree names to be honest. Oh yeah, well <laughs> Maybe not, but you know, there they are. And then when a wildfire comes, like, oh, there, that's where my house once been. You know, well, you know, I'm glad you enjoyed it for 30 years. Because at some point in time, you knew this was going to happen. Yeah. That, you know, so. That's why I say philosophy, matter, too. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're in the forest. Or if you live below a dam, right? If you've lived on the rich, fertile soil below the dam and you've farmed and, and, and it's been the perfect place, it is until the dam finally broke. Right. Yeah, and then there you ended up out there in the ocean. All of a sudden, it wasn't such a perfect place, but, but that's the perfect place you chose. You knew what was going to happen <laughs> when it happened. I don't know. To me, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for for them. I, I feel bad that they lose their home or lose their property. But if this is, you know, I'm coming from people that lived here for eight to 10,000 years. You know, we didn't. We didn't survive. Our people thrived. And thrived because we took care of the land and any resource. So we have 200 resources, 95 food resources. They aren't all 
ripe at the same time. They are not all plentiful every year. You have to know, you know, how to harvest so that when you, your crop is plentiful, it's plentiful for two or three years. It may go dry for five years. You may not have that crop for five years, but you have other crops. And then you work on those until you can get those back up. And that's how you, you plan and you, you look forward to what you're able to to live for the next five years, 10 years, you know, this is, this is a good place. I don't, there's so many archeologists, anthropologists who try to study what the Indians did. And they, well, these people were nomads, they moved around or these people were, you know, when it became hot, they went up to where it was cooler and this is what they say about my people all the time. And then when they come to interview, they put these words into the older people's mouths, you know? Oh, you, when it, it sure is hot down here. I bet in the summertime, y'all went up there where it was cooler. Oh, I guess so. You know, that'd be a lot nicer than here. But the reality is, come summertime, you got very important resources that you got to go further down in the valley to gather or right there where you're living in the foothills. Some of your family went up higher. There, some of your family went clear over the mountain to trade with other Indians. But a good portion of your family stayed right there. You know, they just talked about how nice it would be to go up maybe maybe on a weekend or two. They didn't have cars. They didn't have horses. So, you know, and yet you had to be able to harvest these plants and these food items and all these things. And they were at every every different elevation. So, you know, to, those are the things that are studied and reported on and and how these early researchers recorded all this stuff and then that's what gets studied by kids in colleges today because they don't know any better and they come out to our to where we project and they write up a report and you read things that are 100 years old in their reports you know it's like <laughs> You have no clue how we lived and why we lived. You have no clue why we thrived for 10,000 years and you as a society have only been here for 400 at best and in some 50. Well, how long did, how long did Rome last? It didn't last much longer than that, you know? So you're right. This, it it may come to a time here when this country is going to go down, but it, something will come out of it. It always does. I mean, we, we may not. Yeah. <laughs> you and me, we, you and me may not come out of it, but, but something will come out of it because it always does. It does. Exactly. Empires always transform. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And this uh, one, this one will too. 
Yeah, I, it already has a few times. I, I think I can make a strong argument for. Um, I I have faith in the I have faith in people, and I have faith in people when they're given choices, and I do cherish the fact that we have more choices in America, so we can change, and hopefully what we transform into is is better. I'm 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 not naive enough to think that every transformation is for the good because typically it's not, but I think it can be. I think perhaps the paradox of our time being the fact that you have more information to understand and you know I mean almost any time in the past hundred years I, I would say the past several years have been the best time to understand that the history books are all wrong on your people for example because you know we're able to have conversations like this and more individual knowledge is getting into the ether so we're able to understand more and have access to more information but we also have too much to sift through so I have hope but to your point, though, about um, people buying houses for their vistas and whatnot and lacking some sympathy for them, I actually completely agree. Um, I'm a big fan of coyotes, which I've mentioned to you, I think, at once. And uh, I uh, had a story recently where somebody was telling me about their dog getting killed by coyotes. And I was like, oh, that's awful. I'm sorry. You know, what happened? And then as through the course of the conversation, I, I went from being sympathetic to not having much sympathy. And I had to bite my tongue. Uh, but the long story short, this dog they had was older and had like some some issue with going to the bathroom. So I had to pee a lot. So they built a doggy door and they live uh, in the foothills in San Diego. And they built this doggy door so the dog can go in and out. And in the middle of the night, they were woken to the dog screeching and they went running outside for it. it. Turns out the dog went outside in the middle of the night and a coyote got it. And I had to bite my tongue from saying like, the coyote didn't kill your dog. You kind of killed your dog because you let your dog going out in the middle of the night without you know keeping track of them uh and you live somewhere where there's coyotes everywhere so you know what were you thinking um and and that's why i really like your points about philosophy because you know a lot of what i'm trying to do with this and, and a lot of what i really do with my free time when i have it is thinking about what's a new way of thinking about the world you know accepting the fact that you know um we can go through whatever the world is going to change going forward. You can, it can happen through force or it can happen through a genuine change in individuals. And I think that's really the only means of things that happen. So, you know, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to go backwards to how things were 200 years ago, but if we have enough people that care about what it's going to be like in the next 2000 years, you know, perhaps we can have a real change. And, and one being, you know, an acceptance of the fact that, coyotes are around us and they, they serve an incredibly big role even more so since we don't have foxes and uh, wolves and things like that they're they're kind of filling a lot of other niches and needs um, but that's just one example you know or you know tending to I mean I have to thank you again for talking to me last time because I, I, I was already kind of noticing the overgrowth but now you gave me new eyes and even now that I'm back in the midwest and I'm going through hikes here I'm, I'm looking through forests and I'm constantly questioning what is this supposed to look like? Because I guarantee you, it's not what it looks like now. Um, you know, like I, I went in the, the Dunes National Park here in, in Northern Indiana, not that long ago. And I was, I was walking through it and I kept thinking like, there's so much brush, there's so much undergrowth. The canopy is high. You know, this is a, a, a mixed prairie and marshland. Like what was this like before? Because I, I guarantee it wasn't this. Um, so if there's more people that have these kind of questioning thoughts, like ones that you're stirring in me, you know, perhaps we have a different type of outlook onto nature because nature isn't supposed to be left alone. 
and especially now when it needs so much help. Well, that's a good point because no matter how religious you are, if you go back to your Bible, then people were placed everywhere. And not only people, but all the different kinds of animals, those that grazed on on the brush and those that grazed on the trees and, you know, so they were all placed there as part of that environment. And once you start removing things, it's kind of like having a wagon wheel and you start removing spokes, you begin to weaken that wagon wheel. You know, how many ruts and how many creeks and how many gullies are you gonna be able to hit before that wagon wheel shatters? because you've removed too many spokes. And that's what we, that's how we are. And what we've done as people is we begin to remove things because we think we can manage. I've told you before, I hate the word manage, you know, because these guys don't know how to manage. Um, take deer for instance, you know, um, I argue with fish and wildlife all the time. I'm, I'm, you know, here in, uh, central california and i'm from the mountains and when i was a kid in the 50s and 60s and shoot even the 70s when i first came home from the military then you could take a ride up in the mountains and you would have to stop for deer herds and there might be 50 in the deer herd and you might see 20 deer herds on your drive now you can't see 20 deer, you know, and, but I was impressed this year because I've been out on the, on the land all summer. And so I'm starting to see four to six deer, young females, older ones, bucks, bucks and females in little small herds everywhere. I was so impressed with the deer that are finally coming back. But when we come back to the managing agency, what we've been doing all these years, I raise deer. I have my own fallow deer we raise. So a lot, you know, besides what I thought I knew about deer. But the hierarchy of it, of it all is that you have to have the alpha buck. You have to have the number one buck. You can't be killing him. Like what we do with fish and wildlife, you know, the hunter, he doesn't go out there to eat. I know I got buddies everywhere that are hunters. They don't hunt to eat. Oh, they, when they, when they get a kill and they pass the meat out, they give it away to all their friends. They're nice, but, you know, nice thing to do. But if they were going to hunt to eat, they wouldn't give it away. They might give a piece away or two here and there, but they wouldn't be just sharing it all because they're out there for the hunt. They're not out there for the kill. You know, they don't want the meat per se. And kill the number one buck, what are you leaving? A yearling, you're leaving a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old. 
you're not leaving the bigger bucks to take care of the herds. And so pretty soon your deer are getting smaller, your deer are getting less. And we even kill females. You kill the, the, the hunt for the females. They're still nursing their babies. You know, they're in the middle of nursing their babies. We, they have their babies in the summertime. They're hunting females in August and September. Then they start hunting bucks when they're rutting in October. It's like, they have no clue how to manage, you know? And, and you say that you want to, you, as a fish and wildlife, you know how to manage, you know, but they don't know nothing about managing deer, but they think they do, you know? I, I don't know. You know, I've never, um... I've never heard that before. It's simple and it makes a lot of sense about if you kill the large buck, you're killing, you know, the best genes in one hand and also the best physical presence to make them keep the, keep the herd safe. And that's interesting. I haven't heard that before. Um, if I gave you a magic wand and I said, you get to change the way that deer is managed, what would you change? How would you do it? My older bucks, my older bucks can live to be 20. 20. And, you know, they're still, they're still breeding and they can, they breed as many as 20 does, you know? So think about that. That's some, how many, how many babies, you know, over 20 years, you know, that's 400 minimum that they're going to affect one buck, one herd. Wow. What's fish and wildlife? What's the, the, I mean, most bucks when they're in hunting, isn't there, aren't they usually like seven or eight? I didn't even know they can live to be that long. Is this mule deer, by the way, or what deer is this? That's a pretty old deer if you got a seven and eight year old deer because, you know, he's made it that far without getting shot. <laughs> no, there's old pictures of these old stags that have been around for, 15, 16 years. Wow. Yeah. Great big antlers on them. Yeah. Some people have them. I've seen them. What, um, what would you do if you, if you were being a bit of a realist and you said hunting has to still exist in some capacity, what would you change? What rules of the game would you change? Let them live longer or different ones or well, yeah, not as many tags? There's, there's no there's no reason for you to be killing the older ones you know there's no reason for that you, if you're going to hunt for for the meat and a three four year old be just fine there's nothing wrong with that you get plenty of meat tastes good he's a nice kill you know probably change some of the different times when you could be killing too because our bucks, they breed between September, early October and, and February. February is probably too late. They can breed in February. In early September, early October, they're just coming out of the rut. So that's kind of fresh. You get into mid-October to mid-January, that's your prime time. And what you got to understand too is that 
breeding isn't done at one time, you know, you gotta, you, you might have two or three does in heat at the same time, you know, and you're spending all your energy trying to chase that one down. It's like they have a girl and you got three or four girlfriends. They, you spend all your energy trying to get one to alone all three. <laughs> well, they don't have much difference. And so they have to wait until that one comes into heat again. And they do. They'll come into heat two or three times. We have does that get missed because they just were never in heat at the right time when that buck was available. You know, too many at one time. And given all the right circumstances, he didn't have no problem taking care of the Lord. That's the way it is out there in the wild. It's even worse. You know, while a buck may have a bunch of, and then if he's got several does, a young buck might come along and try to weed one off. Well, that works too. But, it, you know, I don't know. There's just different things that that we just don't have have right in in any of our our agencies that you know what they're doing and it's all about money because their their operation is ran by how many licenses they sell you know and then people have to be able to actually kill a deer once in a while to be able to want to be enormous prices for for licenses you know i don't know you know um so that's, that's, you know, even for us, they charge us almost $400 for our annual license to house them. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, I know that these other guys, they pay up to eight, $900 for a license. <laughs> and that's, for, that's the big revenue. So it all comes back down to that again, economic development, you know, sell them licenses. But what are you doing for the deer? How are, how are you making sure that, and, and they got to eat, they got to be fed. They're not going to get fed on brush that's old. They need young brush. When we restore the meadows, the young oaks that are coming up, up to three and five years old, you can go out there and I can show you pictures after picture of the little baby deer and the young deer mothers bringing their babies over to eat that little that little sprout and if you have a hundred seedlings on your meadow most of them will all be eaten and that's what makes the oak bushy none if it hasn't been eaten on, it's going to grow straight up, and we call those post oaks. Post oaks because they grow straight up, and they made posts out of them, and and gates and things like that. But they weren't nibbled on by the deer. If they're nibbled on, then they're going to become bushy hmm. and have a big canopy, broad-based canopy. For the process. You know, but if you're, if you got the deer out there and you don't have, you're not burning, you don't have 
fresh vegetation coming back, then how are you feeding them? What are they eating? So, you know, I can't, I can't get people to agencies to burn, to do cultural burns under the oaks. You, you have thousands and thousands of oak trees, maybe millions. Most of them don't produce oak, any acorns. Because they don't have fire, they haven't had fire. Hmm. So how are you feeding the species, the wildlife? And everything eats an acorn. Turkeys eat acorns, woodpeckers, blue jays, sapsuckers, squirrels, chipmunks, deer, bear, pig. <laughs> On what? A handful of acorns? You know? I mean, every place I go, I ask every single agency, show me your list of the species that habitat your forest or your park or this area. They, can, they can't give me a list. They can give me a list of their endangered species and their threatened species or their rare species. They can do that, you know, but they can't give me a, a list of everything that's out there. And they can't tell me what they eat. I say, okay, you got 200 acorn trees. You got 200 oaks. How many of those 200 oaks are producing acorn? And of those that are producing acorn, how much acorn? Right? 100 pounds, 25 pounds, 400 pounds. How much is that tree producing? And how often? Then you get some crazy Western scientists. Oh, that acorn takes two years for that acorn to grow. Uh, yeah. And yet that tree produces acorn every single year. <laughs> you know, give me a break. You know, it's that, not that hard to figure out. I don't know. You know there's so much to what we're not doing. Yeah, and it's the philosophy again, right? The philosophy exactly. is, is looking for solutions. Well, looking for problems and finding solutions as opposed to accepting well, that everything is what it is and you might as well keep it in motion. Well, that's part of, that's part of the problem though, John. You don't want to find too big of a problem because you might find the, the solution. And then you got to do something about it. Yeah. And that's what they don't want. They don't want to have to do something about it. So it's better we don't have the answer and let's not even ask the question. Heaven forbid. Then, then we can treat it like a wilderness. If we don't do nothing with it, don't bother it. It won't cost us anything. So why do we want to know what kind of animals live out here in our forest? or in our parks, or in our counties. We don't want to know that. <laughs> my answer uh, my answer to that is because we've inherited it. And what else is there to do? 
we could either we could slap a price tag on it and we could keep going on as business as usual. But insofar as I see it, we keep doing that for much longer and there's not going to be much left to stack a price tag on it that doesn't look like it's wrapped in cellophane. Pretty much. <laughs> I'm glad you're very cheeky with agencies, though, because... Cheeky, that's a good word there. Uh, they really frustrate me. I still spend time with them. Don't know why. Oh, because you're fighting the good fight. And you, <laughs> you're wise enough to know it needs to be fought in, in, in so many intricate levels. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm wise enough or not. <laughs> Are you familiar with Socrates at all? No. Okay. So he's a he's an ancient Greek guy and he's a philosopher and it's, someone it's someone asks him once. One. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh so but he has this he has this one parable and uh the parable goes like this and someone says uh what is wisdom and his answer is all I know is that I know nothing. And I I think the truth is is the further that you understand something, the further that you understand you, what you don't understand. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm anything, I'm, I'm even short of a amateur in, in anything natural related, but I know enough to know that I know nothing. And you, who knows, has the depth of intricate systems in the way that I would say it. You know, uh, someone said that nature is uh, self-perpetuating life systems. And I think what you enter into the fold is that well people have been here for long enough that we've entered that and it's it's self-perpetuating in a lot of ways because we make sure that it thrives around us and if nature or or just life around us thrives then we can thrive and and i think that that's a wisdom that is has a depth to understand that in if the life around you is teeming you're teeming with endless new knowledge that you do not know that's uh, right on point, you know. I, uh, Sir Charles, he uh, he's a pretty good environmentalist, and he's been around the world talking to indigenous people. But that was one of his points was that, you know, uh, you must first restore nature's economy before you can restore humankind economy. Because that's, like I said, when we started this conversation, you know, the Euro-American, when they got here, what did they find? You know, they found everything that they were hoping for. And so, they reap it, rape it, and take from it. They never gave back, and they still haven't given back. They're still taking, they're still reaping, and they're still raping. Well, when does their plundering stop? When do they start thinking in terms of the next thousand years? I don't know, you know? Americans, we just say, well, maybe one day they'll they'll all move to Mars. I don't know. 
you know, maybe they'll all pack up and leave and we won't have to worry about them no more. <laughs> well, That's I'm staying around. Oh, man, I, I, we can ship off the people that don't care. I'm, uh, I'm with you there. You, didn't either, you left. You <laughs> left. You went to Montana. Where you went? <laughs> uh, no, Montana would be uh, would be fun. But uh, yeah, I, I I think a lot about the next two thousand years. So I, I I study a lot of the past thousand years of European history because I've I've climbed out of it with this thought, and that is. Um, Europe, first off, is arrogant, and I think that has to be the first thing that gets brought into the conversation. If you're a European, you have inherited an awfully arrogant and ignorant society, and I would have to say it starts with the fact that Europe is not a continent. It's kind of asinine that we tell ourselves that lie because continents should be easy to distinct, and if we have to be constantly arguing about where the line of Europe falls, I think it's awfully asinine, especially considering the fact that almost every single European invention and idea comes from Asia. And comes over even the printing press was you know had a 50 years before was thriving in a different means in, in china so uh we, we were awfully arrogant um and and i think um with that comes and under, with the last two thousand years really comes from you have a geography and a culture of friction and 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 you know constantly fighting and what that creates is this constant anxiety that we don't even realize we have that we have to constantly be worrying about who's coming over the hill next and for human history like yeah sure that has definitely happened but i think europeans are the startling ones in history and that's part of the reason why they have you know created such awesome militaries is because they fought each other all the time until all of a sudden they found a reason not to fight each other anymore and that's because they found a lot of people that were easy to to, to conquer um so that that kind of is so latent in our thought and in our inheritance and in, you know our ability to even look forward that we're constantly thinking of things in that manner when the reality is is that the variety and diversity of people across the globe before Europeans came and reaped and raped um, was quite vast and while sure Europe um, had you know, wildlife that was quite tenuous to it and, you know, a, a, a fauna and flora of which they would be constantly tending to, but it reacted to them doing that. Um, where in North America, that wasn't the case. And, you know, there's, if you read, like I, I've read a few examples of people who had first contact of Europeans um, to the Americas, and they talk about how wolves weren't, weren't as aggressive as they were expecting, that they were much more curious to their campfires and things like that. And, you know, how one of them, the one that always struck me is this guy said that the wolf got so close to him, he stabbed him just to see if he could and if the wolf would let him. And then he felt bad because it was so easy. Um, and, yeah, and, and just the abundance of, of life and the difference of culture that they walked into is, is so startling. Exactly what I was going to tell you. You know, it, they found us easy to to conquer which they never actually did but they found it easy to to fight with us in a sense because we let them in right we let them come here you know we invited them into our homes and we still are yes you know it's not that we're not leery of them it's not that you know we don't 
you know, trust them. But it's not our nature to keep you out. You know, um, enough here for all of us. There mm -hmm. is. If we look at it differently, right? That's right. Yeah. That's why I obsess so much about philosophy is because how do you see out in the world? That really is what philosophy is, right? Like the acceptance that I can think about myself and I can think about the world around me and I can view it how I choose because I am a, I'm, I'm a homo sapien. That is what we do. And the acceptance, once you accept that, you accept your role, that you are something different. And what is your mode of thinking and viewing the world from there? You know, the, listen to the, our new president's, uh, you know, when he was being sworn in and they had the, this uh, nice preacher got up there and talked. And he was doing real good until he got to the end of his talk and he talked about dominion. And it was like, well, did real good until then, you know. Because that might be the word written in most Bibles. It wasn't the word that God made. It wasn't the word that God used. It's the word that's written in the Bible by some man. But the reality is we don't have dominion. You know, we, we were put here as just one of the species. We we think that goes back to the same thing. We think we were the only ones put here. That we were the ones put here to take care of everybody. You know, it's just like you you read the Bible. It tells you that in the beginning, everybody spoke to everybody. The animals spoke to. You know. But you ask people today, can animals speak? 99.98%, 99.98% will tell you absolutely not, an animal cannot speak. But there is that little bitty 0.02% who knows that animals speak, that they can talk. I myself have been talked to by dogs a couple of times with actual telecommunications heard them talking to me and I spoke back to them. Brief conversation, but I know that it happened. And I know many other people who talk to their horses, talk to their rabbits, <laughs> talk to all different kinds of animals and animals talk back to them. You know, you just have to be able to listen to them and hear them. It's not that we don't do that. It's there. We're the ones that shut it out. And we're still shutting them out. I don't know. Yeah, the further we get from, from, uh, 
life. I don't even want to use the word nature anymore because I feel like it gives the wrong sense. It's really life, right? Um, the less that we get connected to it. You know, I, I think of those 98 and almost 99% of people or whatever the percentage may be of people who don't believe that animals have some form of communication like that, I, I think they probably not spend enough time around their dog or perhaps they don't know how to train their dog, which is probably the more likely of the case. How much time we got? We got uh, another 40, 40 minutes or so. Oh, we're good then. Yeah. Do you have a hard time? Do you have a hard stop at 4.30? No. Okay. I can keep going as long as you want to go. That's 3.49 now. Yeah, we scheduled at 4.30, but I'm down to keep going as long as you can. Oh, okay. I enjoy talking with you. I, I cherish these moments. I hang on every moment. Honestly, Ron, I really cherish talking to you. It's, it's, uh, it's quite lovely. Um, well, let me give you a story. Please you do. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting and ready. I don't know if your, uh, your listeners are ready. So I do a lot of all my life of my past, how my people did things, how they, um, got around, how they, uh, communicated. And uh, one of the things that uh, this summer we had the opportunity to um, record and GPS and map our entire um, historic Mono Trail coming down along the San Joaquin River from the top of the world at 9,200 feet in Lake Adiza, right under Mount Ritter Banner and followed the river as it goes all the way to the ocean. And, you know, putting our trails back on the map and actually going to see which route would have they taken, why would they have gone this way? And then putting the people on the, on the map, putting the people in, where were their trails? How did they get from here to there? Finding, you know, three or four of our our older 1800s and then going to visit that land and find that there's only like one or two ridges, ridges, and that at 3,000 foot, you could step off the mountain and end up in the river at 1,000 feet in one step. How then did these 80 and 90 year old people walk around on this land, travel on this land? And when we were back there into this wilderness, I'll use the name wilderness, but it ain't a wilderness, but it's, it's pretty wild, even though it's, because it's all owned and been owned by ranchers. And we're talking about 40, 50,000 acres of several different ranchers and Bureau of Land Management, Forest Service, all these different 
agencies. So there's bears everywhere, pigs everywhere, turkeys everywhere, all lions everywhere, all this wildlife, you know, still living there. And they were there when these old people were walking around. Today, I wouldn't want to walk around out there. No, knowing that there's a bear on every single road and there's a lion on every single mountain ridge and, you know, by myself, without a gun, probably, you know, just maybe with a poro we call a stick, a walking stick. And yet, they did it. Because we've mapped it out to where this family married that family and this person, you know, went from this place to that place, miles. On some of the roughest terrain you can even think about. Now, taking that a step further then, discovering who some of these people were. In, in my people, my, it's been written by anthropologists and others, you know, but to use a term that um, religious people won't like, but they understood wizardry, sorcery, if you want to put those kind of terms to them. We don't. We use the word power. Your power that's inside of you. The power that's inside of you. Most people barely use 10% of your brain. The smart ones might use 20 to 30% of your brain power. There are other cultures I've studied martial arts all my life, Kung Fu, Judo, Karate, you know, even boxing. These things, to understand these sports and be masters at it, is not a physical aspect, it's a mental and it's spiritual. So when we look at our older people talk about their power. They understood their spirituality. They understood who they were. They understood their connection to the land. And they understood the power they possessed. They understood how to throw their power and knock you down 20, 30 feet away, or make you sick, or come, come into your dream and make you sick, or heal you. So these are the things that they could do. Then this story goes to where one of these people who later on life, she moved out of the wilderness, a little closer into the village areas, remarried. And 
she had a connection to rattlesnakes. Her name was, her given, given name was Captain Waspy. She had a real name, English name, but she lived with rattlesnakes. Some people say she had eight, 10 rattlesnakes, but when she traveled, she traveled with two. One went ahead of her and one came behind her. So one day my father gave me this story before he passed away. And he said he was outside and his great big rattlesnake came and was in the yard. So he went to get his shovel and he was gonna kill it. And my mother came out and my mother said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, there's a rattlesnake out here. I want to kill it. She said, no, you wait. So she came out. My mother was a few years older than my father, like 15. <laughs> she came out and she went over in front of the rattlesnake, bent over the rattlesnake and began to talk to the rattlesnake, never uttering a word but speaking to it mentally. My dad watched, this is his story, and that the snake and my mother moved their heads back and forth for several minutes. And then my mother stood up and told my father, this is Captain Waspy's snake. Captain Waspy is coming. She lived two miles up on the ridge. She wants to go across the river to Aubury, 11 miles away from North Fork. And she wants to see Mrs. Riley. She needs medicine. So my father, get ready. You're going to take us over there in the car. Pretty soon. Here comes Captain Waspy walking up the trail. They get in the car. Over the river they go. They get over to the other side and they go to this another old lady's place. And my mother tells my father, stay in the car or stay out by the car. Don't come in. He saw him go in the door and then they went toward the back room. That's the last he saw them for a while. Then pretty soon they came back out. Then my mother said, okay, let's go now. So he got back in the car. Mrs. Wasp, Captain Wasp, he got back in the car. And my dad started talking, you know. Did you get what you came for? Did you get, you know, did she do what she wanted? My mom, of course, her famous Shh, she told her, hush, you know, don't ask, let's go. Your job is to drive us back home. <laughs> back across the river, well, that's where home is at. Okay, so back across the river they went, hardly uttering a word, not much conversation. Just before you get, you go down from Albury, down into the river, then you come back up to where our place was, about four miles up from the river. 
just before you get to our house, our, our turnoff, there's the, you can see toward our place about a half mile away. And then you got to go around a big corner and you get to the gate. And then it's another half mile back down to the house again. Well, when they got to the opening, Mrs. Waspy started talking in Indian real loud. And my father understood some, quite a bit, but he didn't quite understand everything she was saying. So he asked, he turned around to kind of look at her. My mom yelled at him, turn around, watch the road. Well, what's she saying? What's she want? Told him to hush again. But when they got up close to the gate, she was still talking. The old lady was still talking. And then my mother told my father, she's talking to her rattlesnakes. She has two of them. She's telling them to get going, be ready when she gets there. And so my dad said he only saw the one. So he got out, opened the gate, drove through, closed the gate, and drove down the road as fast as he could go in them. When he got to the house, he got out of the car and he went straight across in front of the house to the trail that she was on. Stood by it, not right at the trail, he stood back a little ways. And there was one of her rattlesnakes coiled up at the head of the trail. And when she, when he looked down the trail before it went down to the creek, there was her other rattlesnake going ahead of her. And then she walked by him. You never look at people and you never look at the old ones. You always look down, you always look away. He said, but a very, very cold spell went through and every hair on the back of his neck stood up as she walked by and she mumbled and grumbled something, maybe saying thank you, who knows. But when she got to her, her rattlesnake, she talked to it and she went ahead and her rattlesnake followed her. And that was her two snakes. But the, the idea of this story is she talked to her rattlesnakes a half mile away and let them know what she wanted and where she was at. And they listened. And when that rattlesnake first showed up, my mother talked to it. He knew exactly what the old lady wanted and that the old lady was coming. We had no telephones. There was no other means of knowing except that communication. And I can tell you story after story of other kinds of communications, but this is just a prime example of where we are in the conversation that you and me are having in terms of being still able to, to speak to, to our other species, to be able to understand what our species needs what this world needs, what our environment needs. You have to be able to talk to it. You have to be able to understand it. For a period of time, I was giving the closing blessing in Sacramento for California American Indian Day during the early 2000s. 
they invited me up every year to do the closing blessing for all the people, for all the tribes. Before I would go, this was late September, fourth Friday of every September. Before I would go, I'd be out in the woods, out in the meadows. And I'd be talking out there and they would be talking to me. And when I got up there, the people would ask me before I was done, is it gonna rain this year? Is it gonna snow this year? What kind of weather are we going to have? And I would tell them, and I would be correct, year after year after year, because of the ability to be able to listen, hear, and feel what's going on around you. We still have to have that connectedness. If you don't have that connectedness, how are you gonna know what is needed? When you get around these agencies, they have no connectedness, none. They don't even hear you when they don't hear me when I talk. They don't, they listen because out of respect, they'll give me a few minutes to run my mouth that's it they already have you know they already know what they want they know how they're going to do things i've been with these agencies all my life and i ask all these people when i'm in meetings what you've been doing for the past century what you've been doing for the past two centuries has not worked what century do you think is going to work for you because whatever you've been doing hasn't worked. I just got done with the Dinky Collaborative. It's a, one of uh, the, the United States has 22 uh, restoration collaboratives. And the Dinky is one of the lead restoration collaboratives in the United States. We have 34 really good partners. I was with them for 10 years they spent $10 million, not a dime on meadows and not a dime on oaks. I'm done, I'm through working with them. But, you know, I was there, they didn't listen. They're not going to. And yet we just got done with the biggest wildfire we've ever had in history. And there's another one coming. So I don't know, you know, it's a, I, the whole concept here is, you know, when we talk about what needs to happen, the changes that need, need to happen, you know, I keep telling people change is not going to happen. Not right now, because we have nothing but old people running these agencies. You know, they may not be that old, but they old in thinking. They're old in their ways and they can't change them. You know, old dogs can't learn new tricks. You just throw them a bone, pamper them a little bit, wait till they retire. 
and hopefully some get some young college people trained. You know, I keep telling all the young college people, go find agencies, go find conservations, go find, you know, reserves and preserves and go work there. You know, grow, find out what you need to know. Maybe one day you'll take over an agency. But if you, if young people try to go to the forest and the park, and, you know, they get told we don't do business like that. That's not how we do things. <laughs> well, it comes back again. How you been doing things for two centuries? Has it worked? And when do you think it's going to work for you? You know? I'll tell you one more story. You ready? This is a good one. Yeah, please do. Keep going. Okay. You'll laugh. So there was a white man. He went to the cemetery and he took flowers. And every time he went, he took flowers for his loved one. And next to him was this Chinaman. And this Chinaman took rice. And every time he went, he took rice. And next to him was an Indian. And this Indian took acorn. And every time he went, he took acorn. Pretty soon the white man said one day, hey, when do you think your people are gonna come up and eat that rice and eat that acorn? The Indian and the Chinaman looked at each other and then they looked at the white man and they said, same time your people come up and smell flour. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I like that. The arrogance of what's obvious, right? <laughs> I uh, I appreciate all of that stories. How did your father, was your father shocked by that when he saw it? No. No? He grew up that way. Yeah. He grew up that way. He understood the ways. I grew up that way. I understand the ways. That's very fascinating. It's unquantifiable as well. So it's probably labeled as mystic, but that's doesn't mean it doesn't serve yeah. a very good purpose. Early, right? You can put whatever kind of terminology you want on them. That, that, that doesn't mean anything. Can I throw you a definition yeah. of God and see how you react to it? <laughs> good luck. Would you define or what what would you find issue with this? If I define God as a love supreme. As a what? You cracked up. Uh, God, defining God as a love supreme. The most supreme love. Is that God of Venus or what? <laughs> the connected and universal oneness of all things. Is connected through love, a a a higher level or higher order of love. I would say, why not? But you got to understand going. that 
No, not actually. Because as a spiritual being, he is everything. We as spiritual beings are everything. Do you understand that? I think I we do. Have, we have one spirit. Okay, so in the Indian world, in, in our mythology, we have the eagle on one side and the coyote on the other. And these are, the eagle is a bald eagle, he represents the water. The coyote represents land. The eagle in water is wet. And the coyote with the land is dry. There are many other species, many others who come under these two. Golden eagle is with coyote. He's on the land. So, and then under them sits owl and bear. Owl is a spiritual being. And bear is spiritual, but a healer. So when we look at bear and woman, I, I'm a stone carver. I have carved a bear with a woman naked. Only the woman can ride the bear because the bear and the woman are in charge of the home. They are in charge of love and they are in charge of medicine. Those are the three things they are in charge of. So they are one and the same. Today you have cultures and you have religious groups who try to pit the man, you know, as in charge of the home. But he's not, it's not his job. Yes, today we have men who stay home and the women go to work. Even if she's working, she's still in charge of the home. And even if, and he runs the home, she's still in charge of the home. That doesn't change. Love is still there because that's what it takes. The medicine is still there. The bear is in charge of medicine because he's head of the forest. And that's where the medicine is at. So the owl over here, him being the spiritual being, my mother was an owl woman and owls come to her and would tell her about when somebody's dying and when somebody's sick and when somebody died. Not the greatest thing that you want something to come to you and many Indians don't like the owl. They don't want the owl because they know what the owl does. And so 
doesn't matter. That's what's there. Doesn't matter because those things, we are both, we are all. I am from the dry, I am from the wet. I am from the spiritual, I am from the love. And my spirit can go in any direction. I can be straight. I can be gay. I can be soft. I can be hard. Because I am everything. I am all things. There may be things that happen to like a river that flows, it makes changes. Things can get in its way and it may change its flow. It may change its direction of where it's going. Those things happen, but that's still flowing. And that's our spirit. We're given that spirit. It can be all things because creator is all things. And uh, you know, when you when you understand, even the, understand the Bible, understand the religious teachings, we say, as people, as you, as Indians, that. Everything's our relative. We treat everything as our relative because creator gave all things life. He gave all things life. He gave rock life. Rock has life. Water has life. Tree has life. They all have a spirit. We have a spirit. Every animal, every ant, every spider, every bug, Every bear, every deer, every lion, they all have a spirit given to them by creator. So therefore, we're all related. If you treat everybody like that, then we're all in relationship to each other. If you don't, then you're separating yourself out, you know? Right? Yeah. It's kind of like the, like the atheist that was out on the trail. You know? He doesn't believe in God. And then he runs across this grizzly bear. And he sees the grizzly bear. And he says, oh, my God. Oh, God. You know, I've never believed in you. But I'll tell you what. If you make this bear a Christian, I'll forever believe in you. And so God listened to him. The bear got down on his knees and the bear folded his hands and the bear did a prayer. And he said, it's a meal that I am about to partake. And the bear thanked God 
God made him a Christian. <laughs> uh, I like that a lot. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So that's that's my answer to your question. Uh, I love it. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that until the next time we talk, because I'm going to rope you into this again. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. I, um, there's this author, um, and he has a speech that I bring up a lot. It's called, this is water. And there's a part in it. that's similar to what you just said. Um, and I think it speaks to a greater, a, a greater truth about, um, our time. If I could help translate what you just said into our audience here. And, um, so there's, uh, two people in a bar. As he puts it, uh, they're getting into that special intensity that comes with about the fourth beer. And uh, the one guy's an atheist and the one's really religious. And the really religious guy says, I, I don't understand. How could you not believe? And the atheist guy says, I don't understand. How could you believe? And uh, something happened, you know, a few weeks back. And the atheist is talking, trying to prove his point, And he says, uh, He's out in the wilderness and it's cold and they're, you know, some remote town in Alaska and he's lost. He doesn't know where he is and he, he knows surely he's about to die. So he drops to his knees and he says, God, if there is a God, please save me and I'll believe you. And then to, uh, and then the, the uh, religious man interjects before the atheist can finish. And he says, well, you're here in front of me. Why aren't you believing? And the guy goes, ah, come on, man. We talking about it wasn't uh, God that saved me. It was the two people that crossed my path. And uh, the the point of it that he makes, and I think it's great, is uh, the same experience to two people can mean two wholly different things. You know, to the religious man, it re reaffirms his belief, and to the atheist, it reaffirms his. Um, but the greater truth among both of those perspectives is that, regardless of what you believe in, we all worship. And you just are either aware and you're active in that worshiping or you're unaware and you're a slave to it because both of them could be true. It could not have been God that time as he so graciously uh, had the uh, bear genuflect before eating the person. Uh, you know, it, it could have been just the fact that there was two hikers, but it also could have been God that sent those two hikers. Um, and, and I think at our time, we can either choose to believe that we have a connectness, connectedness and a user, universal oneness and all of it. And we can choose to believe something as lofty as I subscribe to is that it's all based on love. Or we can continue going on in the pace that we're going and, you know, we can speak to the people that are forebearers of our ancestors, such as yourself, or we can speak to people that are even just uh, the greatest philosophers of our time. And we can know that we are living a hollower and less sanctimonious and fulfilling life than we have before. So what are we going to choose to believe? Yeah, exactly. All right. All right. Well, we can stop there. I, uh, I appreciate it. I would love to have you on again. I would love to have you on as a reoccurring. I, I didn't ask you any of my water questions, but I had too much fun. <laughs> Uh, so we can save that for next time. If you, if you would grace me with some more time, uh, is there anything else I want to, I want to pause it and just thank you again before I let you go. But is there anything before I stop the recording? No, we're good. 
Good, good. I love talking to you. I, I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Ron. <laughs> All right.